Hi, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 3. If it's been a while since you've been with us, or perhaps this is your first time, first of all, welcome. Glad you're here. We are in the middle of a series on Genesis 1 through 3. We took a one-week break last week to focus on the resurrection in Matthew 28, since it was Easter Sunday, but this morning we are back in Genesis 3. At Free Money Free, we like to take books of the Bible or portions of books of the Bible and preach to them verse by verse. And the reason we do that is we want the Word of God to set the agenda. And so that's what we're doing this morning. We're in Genesis 3, verses 8 to 13. Let me pray, and then we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we want to pause here as we turn our attention to your Word. And we're pausing not just because this is what we usually do or because we feel obligated to do so, but rather because we are in desperate need of your help in this moment. We need your Spirit to be heavy upon us. We know that your Word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. We know that it will accomplish all that you desire and achieve the purpose for which you sent it. But we know for that to happen, and we know that for your word to land with the punch that we wanted to, it requires the work of your Holy Spirit. And so we're just praying that your spirit would be at work today, that it would be heavy upon me, that I would communicate faithfully what your word says, but also that it would be heavy upon the hearers today. That all of us in this room would have ears to hear, that we would have ears to hear what your word would teach us, that we'd be convicted where we need to be convicted, challenged where we need to be challenged, and encouraged where we need to be encouraged. So God, please be merciful to us sinners today. Please speak to us. Let your word impact our lives so that we would leave here more in love with Jesus and with a greater desire to live for his kingdom. Please, God, help us in this moment. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, when a big event happens, there's usually both an immediate aftermath and a long-term aftermath, and both come with their own unique set of consequences. For example, my wife was involved in a terrible accident in car, or car accident in high school. She was on her way to school one morning, and she came over a hill on a highway, and several cars were stopped on the road waiting to turn. And unfortunately, given the speed that she was traveling at, Tanya didn't have enough time to brake fully before she plowed into the car in front of her and set off a domino reaction with the rest of the cars. And the immediate aftermath of that event was pretty devastating, particularly for Tanya. She was rushed by ambulance to the hospital, where it was discovered that she had a collapsed lung, a shattered ankle, and several other injuries of varying degrees of seriousness. The collapsed lung, though, was by far the biggest problem, and for a while it seemed like she might not even make it. She was in ICU for a long period of time, and things were touch and go. But eventually she started to get better, and after months or so in the hospital, she was able to finally go home. But that didn't mean the effects were over. The long-term effects of that event stretched out for an extended period of time well beyond the car accident, and in fact, those effects have never really gone away completely. For about 15 years, Tani was not able to run at all because of complications due to her ankle injury and subsequent surgery. And even though she was finally able to overcome some of those issues through physical therapy and strength building, she still had to pay extra careful attention and give extra treatment to that ankle when she was running and training for triathlons. And if her health ever allows her to get back to the point where she can run again, no doubt she will still have to pay careful attention to that ankle. I also have no doubt that as she gets older, she'll also have some extra aches and pains in that particular joint. The point is that there was both an immediate aftermath, the hospital with my wife's accident, and there was also a long-term aftermath, the ongoing issues that she has with ankle and other things. But when major events occur, that's the way it usually works. There's both immediate consequences and long-term ones. In some cases, the immediate aftermath is more serious and the long-term less so. That's probably the case with my wife's accident. But in other cases, the long-term aftermath actually ends up being much more significant than the immediate aftermath. But either way, the point is, with big events, there's both short-term and long-term consequences. And we see that in Genesis 3. When sin enters the world in Genesis 3, an event known as the fall, there's both an immediate aftermath and a long-term aftermath. Now, in the case of the fall, the long-term aftermath is absolutely devastating. 
In fact, you could make the argument, I would make the argument, that all of the problems we see in the world today can be traced back to what happens in Genesis 3. So make no mistake about it, the long-term aftermath of the fall is catastrophic. And next week, we'll talk more about the long-term effects of sin entering the world. But there is also an immediate aftermath to the fall, and that's the focus of our passage today. In Genesis 3, verses 8 to 13, we see the instantaneous result of sin entering the world. And while that instantaneous result is probably not as devastating as the long-term effects, the instantaneous result is devastating nonetheless. The immediate aftermath of sin entering the world was absolutely disastrous. But disastrous as it might be, I think the immediate aftermath of the fall provides us with some valuable lessons that are still applicable even today. So that's where I want our attention to be this morning. Next week, we'll turn our attention to the long-term effects of the fall. But this week, the focus is on the immediate aftermath. And in that immediate aftermath, there are lessons to be had. So that's it. Let's turn our attention then. Genesis 3, 8 to 13. If you're able to physically stand, I'm going to ask you to do so at this point, just so we can show our reverence for the reading of God's word as we turn our attention to the immediate aftermath of sin entering the world. Verses 8 to 13, the words will be on the screen. You can listen as I read, or you can follow along in your own Bibles. We read this starting in verse 8, the word of God. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. We'll stop there for today. That's the word of God. You may be seated. So just make sure we understand where we are in the book of Genesis. Let's just take a step back here for a second. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the whole universe and all that's in it, including us, including us as humans. And that creation, we're told back in Genesis 1 and 2, was good. In fact, more than just good, it was very good. But in Genesis 3, 1 to 7, the passage that we looked at two weeks ago, something went terribly wrong. Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, disobeyed God's command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in doing so, they rebelled against the authority of the Creator, and they brought sin into the world. And in our passage today, we see the immediate aftermath of that decision. And the immediate aftermath is ugly. Now again, I would argue the long-term aftermath is even uglier. But the immediate aftermath is ugly enough. But again, my hope this morning is simply this, that we can learn from the ugliness. So to that end, my plan this morning is to simply point out three lessons from the immediate aftermath of the fall. And then I want to challenge us to put those lessons into action, to live differently in light of what we learned here in Genesis 3. So three lessons. Lesson number one from the immediate aftermath. Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from God. Verses 8 to 10. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now, given that God is spirit and thus does not have a body and cannot be seen, there are some questions as to what's actually happening here in verse 8 when God is said to be walking in the garden. Is the author of Genesis simply using anthropomorphic language in which he ascribes to God human attributes so we can understand that God was present? Or is this a theophany in which God manifests himself in some visible way to humans? Or, given possible variations in the Hebrew language that you may even see in your footnotes, is it possible that this is actually the wind blowing and God is making his presence known through the wind? 
The truth is we don't know for sure exactly what's happening in verse 8. But I think it's okay that we don't know because the main thing we need to understand from verse 8 is that the author is simply trying to communicate to us that Adam and Eve are now trying to hide from God's presence. In some way, God was uniquely present in the garden. But after the fall, Adam and Eve are trying to hide from him. And if this attempt were not so tragically sad, it would actually be a little bit comical. I mean, do they really think they can hide from God? It's true in verse 8 that God asked the question, where are you? But given that the way the next verses unfold, it's clear that question was rhetorical. He already knows the answer. Think of it this way. When my kids were younger, we would sometimes play hide and seek together. And when they were really young, they weren't very good at it. And so I might come into the room and hear them moving behind the door or see a giant lump under the sheets on the bed. And immediately I would know that's where they are. But in those moments, I wouldn't usually just run over and say, oh, there you are. I would sometimes ask questions out loud like, oh, where could they be? Is it possible they're behind the door? Is it possible that they're underneath these sheets? And usually those questions would elicit a response. Sometimes they knew because they'd been caught, they would just come out hiding. Or sometimes they would start laughing underneath the covers or laughing behind the door. The point is, my questions were not questions of ignorance. I knew where they were. Rather, they were rhetorical and designed to elicit a response. I think we see something similar happening here in Genesis 3. When God asks the question, where are you? He's not ignorant of where they are. He already knows the answer. The question is rhetorical in nature and designed to bring Adam out of hiding and elicit a response. And that's what it does. In verse 10, Adam comes out of hiding and he confesses his fear and shame. As Adam says in verse 10, I heard the sound of you and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Prior to the events of Genesis 3 verses 1 to 7, Adam and Eve were living in perfect harmony with God. But it's clear in verses 8 to 10 that perfect harmony was shattered by Adam and Eve's disobedience. Instead of longing to be with God, they are now hiding from God. Not long after this, they would be permanently kicked out of the garden, and eventually both Adam and Eve would die a physical death as a result of their rebellion. But here in the immediate aftermath, we simply see that their sin instantly separated them relationally from God. They're hiding from His presence. They're cowering in fear. They're running from the one who gave them life. This is actually an incredibly heartbreaking scene. And it's heartbreaking because everything was so good in Genesis 1 and 2, and now everything is so messed up. Instead of the peace and safety and security which they once enjoyed, there's now shame and fear and alienation. Adam and Eve's sin separated them relationally from their creator. But what we need to understand this morning is that sin still does the same thing. Sin still separates us from God. And it does so in both a big picture sense, meaning a once and for all sense, but also in a small picture sense, meaning in a daily sense. In the big picture, Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. In other words, what we, re- what we deserve is a result of our sin. And by sin, I mean rebellion against God, a failure to keep his commandments, an unwillingness to walk in obedience to what he says. The wages of sin, which by the way, we've all done, is death. It's separation from the presence of God, spiritual death more precisely. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, when God warns Adam in chapter 2, verse 17, that if he eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on that day he will surely die. When God gives that warning, he wasn't primarily talking about a physical death. Now, obviously, both Adam and Eve would eventually die physically as a result of being cast out of the garden and away from the tree of life. But in chapter 217, when God warned them, you'll die, he was referring primarily to his spiritual death. If Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, they would die spiritual death in the sense that they would be separated from God relationally, cast out of his presence. And that's exactly 
what happens to Adam and Eve here. But here's the thing you need to understand. That's what happens to us when we disobey God and rebel against his commands. We too die spiritually. We are cut off from God. And the only way we can be rescued from this spiritual death is through Jesus Christ. As Ephesians 2 tells us, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But in his mercy, God sent Jesus that we might be made alive. In other words, our sins separated us from God, but Jesus came that he might bring reconciliation to our relationship, that he might make us right again through his perfect obedience and through his substitutionary death on the cross. To use the language of Ephesians 2, if we turn to him in saving faith, we can be made alive. Our right relationship can be restored. So in the big picture sense, our sin separates us relationally from God in a once and for all way. The wages of sin is death. And the only way to rectify that is by trusting in Jesus Christ. But there's also a smaller picture sense in which our sin still separates us from God relationally, even if we've been made alive through faith in Jesus Christ. What I mean by that is that our, still, our sin still causes a relational disconnect. Think about it this way. If I came home from work tomorrow and I told Tanya, you know, I don't really like being around you anymore. Let's just not talk. I feel confident because of our commitment to the marriage covenant, we would stay married and thus still have a relationship. But I can promise you this, if I told my wife those things, there would be a relational disconnect, and rightfully so. How could I say those things to my wife and assume that we're still going to be close relationally? In the same way, if we're in Jesus Christ, then our sins have been paid for and we are in right relationship with God. But if we choose to walk in sin, if we choose to walk according to our flesh, if we choose to disobey God's commands, there is going to be a relational disconnect. We are going to feel distant relationally because this is what sin does. Sin separates us. Listen, if there have ever been periods of time in my life, even as a Christian, where I've had sin that I've kept in the dark or not confessed it quickly or not repented immediately, there's no question that that lingering sin affects my relationship with the Lord. In Psalm 32, David said it this way, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. The context of that verse in Psalm 32 is connected to the confession of sin. What David's saying is this, when we fail to confess sin, it eats away at us. Our bones waste away. It hurts our relationship with God. So in both the big picture sense, the once and for all sense, and the small picture sense, sin separates us relationally from God. And that's one of the lessons that we see here in the immediate aftermath of the fall in Genesis 3. And in light of that lesson, here's my encouragement for us in terms of a response. We should take our sins seriously. If sin separates us from God, the way to respond to that is to take sin seriously. If sin separates us from God, we cannot pretend as if sin's no big deal. There's no way you can read Genesis 3 and think, oh, that sin issue with Adam and Eve, that was no problem. No, there's no way to read Genesis 3 that way because sin is a big deal. It was a cataclysmic disaster. Primarily because it separated them relationally from God. But again, this is what sin does. I think some of us are under the impression that sin is kind of like a little puppy that chews on things. Yes, it's annoying, and we would prefer the puppy not be chewing on stuff in our house. But at the end of the day, it's not the end of the world because it's a puppy. It's just sin. But sin is more like a ravenous lion than it is like a puppy that's trying to chew on your shoes. Sin isn't just annoying, it's trying to eat you alive. It's trying to separate you relationally from God. And if there's a ravenous line in your house, you don't just ignore the line and hope it goes away. No, you have to take the line out before it takes you out. We must take our sins seriously. In the big picture sense, this means turning to Jesus Christ so our sins can be forgiven and so that we can have peace with God. 
If you've never trusted in Christ, you are relationally separated from God, and your only hope is to trust in Christ. But if you're a believer, in the smaller picture sense, I think what this means is that we're fighting against sin every single day. Martin Luther once said that the Christian life is a life of repentance. It's a life of constantly recognizing we're slightly going off course and we're repenting and coming back. We're seeing our sin and we're fighting against it. And in that, I think there's a challenge. Listen, I'm just going to be honest. Some of you right now, even those who are professing Christians, are living in unrepentant and unconfessed sin. Maybe there's some in here this morning who are addicted to pornography. Or maybe you're getting drunk every weekend. Or maybe you're gossiping at every opportunity. Or maybe you're lying in your workplace. Or maybe you're using your words constantly to cut others down, speaking harshly to your spouse, or blowing up in anger at your kids. Or maybe you prioritize other things over your relationship with God, and it's obvious by both your checkbook and your calendar that that's the case. Or maybe you're filled with pride, thinking you're always right and everyone else is always wrong. Or maybe it's something else. But the point is this, if any of those things describe you, if you're living in the dark, my encouragement this morning is to fight the lion. Not because you should, not because I'm telling you to, not because it's quote-unquote the right thing to do, but rather take your sin seriously because sin hinders our relationship with God. And when our relationship with God is hindered, we forfeit joy. When I look back on my life, I'm getting a little bit older now, so there's more to look back on. But when I look back on my life, I cannot think of one time where I was living in unrepentant sin or unconfessed sin, and I look back on that and think, that was awesome. Now, I look back on those times with regret and sorrow. It's when we fight against sin and when we pursue Jesus with all we have and throw off the distractions of the world, those are the days that bring true and lasting joy. When we fail to take our sin seriously, when we fail to confess it and repent of it, we are losing out on joy that could be ours. Conversely, though, when we fight against our sin and we live for Christ, it's then that we experience true joy and satisfaction. So I think the first lesson here and corresponding response from the immediate aftermath of the fall is this. Sin separates us from God, therefore we should take our sin seriously. Lesson number two. Lesson number two. Our natural tendency is to avoid taking responsibility for sin. Our natural tendency is to avoid taking responsibility for sin. The blame game in Genesis 3 is real. Both Adam and Eve want to blame their sin on someone else. It starts with Adam. Since Adam is the leader of the couple and head of the family, God addresses Adam first. In fact, he addresses him exclusively at the beginning. The language of verse 9 lets us know that God is specifically talking to Adam. Whereas they, plural, heard God walking in the garden. When God asked the question, where are you in verse 9, that you is singular. It's being asked to Adam, where are you? The you is also singular in verse 11. Look at verse 11. He being God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So again, the question is being addressed specifically to Adam. Who told you, Adam, that you were naked? Who told you, Adam? And, and have you, Adam, eaten of the tree which I commanded you, Adam, not to eat? As representative leader, God wanted Adam to take responsibility, to lead and shepherd his wife, but he failed. He said nothing as Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, and he ate of the fruit himself. And when confronted with his failure, rather than taking responsibility, for his failed leadership or taking responsibility for his own sin, Adam instead plays the blame game. When God asks the rhetorical questions that he does in verse 11, again, already knowing the answer, he's giving Adam a chance to confess and take responsibility. But Adam wants nothing to do with responsibility. Instead, he blames it on the woman 
And I think you can make the argument he ultimately blames it on God. In fact, listen to what he says in verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. So as Adam puts in verse 12, the woman whom you, God, gave to me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. In other words, what Adam's doing is this. He's saying, yeah, it's true. I ate the fruit, but the woman gave it to me and you gave me the woman. So it's not really my fault. It's her fault. And it might even be your fault, God. Adam plays the blame game here. Now Eve, she blames someone else, but she plays the same game. We see this in verse 13 when God addresses Eve. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Same game. Not my fault. The serpent gave to me. Both Adam and Eve are playing the blame game. My sin is not my fault. It's someone else's. And make no mistake about it, we play the same game. Like Adam and Eve, we're sometimes willing to confess that we didn't handle that as good as we could have, or we could have done that better, but we often try to wiggle out of responsibility for owning our sin by blaming someone else. For example, if you're a kid and you get in an argument with your sibling, what's your first instinct? To blame it on the sibling. Well, they did this first. That's why I did this. If you're married, though, we do the same thing. Well, I would have been a better spouse, but they were just being a bad spouse to me. And in parenting, same game. Yeah, I probably shouldn't have raised my voice there with my kid, but they brought me to it. It's kind of their fault, right? We let ourselves off the hook. Rather than taking ownership of our sin and taking responsibility for what we've done, we give half apologies and we play the blame game. Our natural sinful tendency is the same one that we see here in the garden. And if you don't believe me, the next time some public figure apologizes, apologizes, listen carefully to what they say. Rather than saying something like, I blew it. What I did was just wrong. I was offensive in what I said, and that was just dumb. There's no excuse. Please forgive me. They instead say things like, if anyone was offended by what I said, I apologize. Do you hear the slight shift? Right? It's not taking ownership. Instead, it's kind of passing off. If anyone was offended, because let's be honest, it might be partially their fault. Earlier this week, an NBA player, professional basketball player, attempted to punch his teammate on the sideline. I'm sure there's some story there. Afterwards, he apologized, which he should have done. But in his apology, there was this line, and I quote, I should not have reacted the way I did, regardless of what was said. Now, I'm not trying to be the apology police here, but do you hear the blame game in that apology? Implying that statement is that, yeah, I shouldn't have tried to punch my teammate, but I wouldn't have had to if he wouldn't have said what he did. It's the blame game. It's the same game we see in Genesis 3. And in that blame game is one of the lessons we learn from the immediate aftermath of the fall. Our natural tendency is to not take responsibility for our own sin. And so I think our response to that should be fairly straightforward. We should respond by taking responsibility for our sin and refusing to play the blame game. So I've been in ministry for about 17 years now. In the last few years, I've had a bit of an epiphany as it relates to ministry and specifically counseling situations. And the, uh, the, excuse me, the epiphany is connected to a pattern that God has helped me to see. And this is the pattern. Whether it be marital conflict or family conflict or a conflict with someone else in the church or a work conflict or any other relational conflict, almost every crisis counseling situation I've been involved with over the years has one thing in common. And the one thing in common is this. At least one of the parties, usually both, is unwilling to take responsibility for their sin. In other words, they play the blame game. The same game that Adam and Eve are playing. It's not really my fault, it's their fault. 
They gave me the fruit. They made me do this. If they wouldn't have been that way, I wouldn't have had to be that way. Really, the issue is on them. But can we just admit that doesn't work? It didn't work for Adam and Eve, and it doesn't work today. In one of Jesus' more stunning parables, he contrasts a religious leader, a Pharisee, with a known sinner, a tax collector. You probably know the parable. In the parable of the religious leader, the Pharisee prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The tax collector, on the other hand, can't even lift up his eyes to heaven in the parable. Instead, he simply prays, beating his chest, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So in the parable, the religious leader is pointing to their own morality, their own accomplishments. The tax collector simply acknowledges his sin and his need for God's mercy. The twist of the parable is that the tax collector, the sinner, goes home justified. By the way, this would have been shocking to Jesus' original audience. The tax collector, the sinner, goes home justified. The religious leader, on the other hand, does not. Now, here's the thing about the parable. I think most of us like that parable, number one, because Jesus is telling it, and we know we should. Number two, we like that parable because Jesus is getting after a religious leader, which we kind of like. And number three, he's turning conventional wisdom on its head. But here's the trick of the parable. The trick of the parable is that more of us are probably like the Pharisee than the tax collector. Rather than taking ownership for our sin, we like to blame others and lift up our own morality. And thus, the parable is not just directed at a generic target. The parable is directed at people like us. Rather than acknowledging our sin and confessing our need for mercy, we instead often justify ourselves and play the blame game. We have a really hard time admitting we're sinners. We need mercy. But it seems to me that if we're going to live for Christ, and we're going to do so in a way that brings true joy and freedom, then we're going to need to learn to be quicker to confess our sin and less quick to play the blame game. One of my friends had a phrase that he would use regularly with his young sons. He would tell them, young men take responsibility. But the more I've thought about the phrase, the more I've realized he was only half right. Because that's not just a phrase for young men. That's a phrase for all Christians. Christians take responsibility. We own our sin. We don't blame others. We confess our need for mercy. If we've blown it as a spouse, we don't blame it on our spouse we take ownership. If we've blown it as parents, we don't blame it on our kids acting up. We just acknowledge we blew it. As Christians, we take responsibility. We ask for mercy. And the good news is this. If we respond in that way, there is one who is merciful and waiting. And that brings us to the third and final lesson from the immediate aftermath of the fall. God pursues the lost sinners. Now let's be absolutely clear here. God is just and he must punish sin. And even in Genesis 3, God's justice is everywhere. In verses 14 to 19, which we'll look at next week, God is going to pronounce his righteous judgment over the serpent, Adam and Eve. In verses 20 and 24, God is going to drive Adam and Eve out of the garden, away from the tree of life. And as a result of that, Adam and Eve will die one day. This is a consequence for their sin and rebellion. So God is just, and he does punish sin. Make no mistake about it. But having said that, even in the immediate aftermath of Adam and Eve's sin, there's still evidence of God's mercy and his pursuit of sinners. Now, to know why I say that, let me just point out two things in verses 8 to 13. First, I want you to notice the name of God that is used in verses 8 to 13. Throughout verses 8 to 13, God is referred to as the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim in the Hebrew. 
Back at the beginning of chapter 2, we talked about this. We noted that the name Elohim, God, is a name that conveys strength and power and God's sovereignty. The name Yahweh, Lord, is a personal name. It's associated with God's covenant-making and covenant-keeping nature. Throughout chapter 1, God was referred to as God, Elohim, which was entirely appropriate for chapter 1 because God is creating. He's the sovereign creator. But in chapter 2, when the attention shifted to the relationship between God and man, God was referred to from that point forward as Yahweh Elohim, Lord God. As we noted back in chapter 2, that shift seemed intentional. It was communicating that God is both the all-powerful creator, but also a personal God who wants relationship with his people. So with that backdrop in mind, something really interesting happened at the beginning of chapter 3, which we did not point out two weeks ago. When the serpent referred to God in chapter 3, verse 1, and in following, notice that he does not refer to God as Yahweh Elohim or Lord God. Instead, he refers to him simply as God or Elohim. Now, the woman actually follows suit by calling God, God, Elohim in verse 3. Again, the personal name Yahweh is missing. I suspect that was intentional on the serpent's part. He wanted to de-emphasize the personal and covenant-keeping nature of God. So the fact that God is again being referred to as Lord God, or Yahweh Elohim in verses 8 and following, is extremely significant, I think. It's, ex- it's significant because Adam and Eve had just rebelled against God, and yet he identifies himself in the immediate aftermath of their rebellion by using his personal name, the covenant-keeping name, Yahweh. And in that, I think there's a hint here. God is not done with Adam and Eve. Yes, they've rebelled, and yes, they've sinned against him, but he's not done with them, and he's not done with us as humans. And in fact, the rest of the Bible will make clear he's not done with us. Yes, we've sinned, and yes, we have sinful natures, but God still chases after us. Despite our rebellion, he's merciful and wants relationship. This will only be confirmed in the rest of Genesis 3 and in the rest of the Bible. Now, I think there's a second thing in verses 8 to 13 that points us in the same direction. I want you to think about the way that God interacts with Adam and Eve in these verses. After the rebellion, God had every right to drop the hammer of justice. He had every right to wipe Adam and Eve off the face of the planet. But notice, his first interaction with them is simply to ask this question. Where are you? Where are you? In fact, you'll notice, God does not make any statements in verses 8 to 13. Those statements are coming, but no statements here. Instead, four questions. And the first one is simply... Where are you? Now again, God's justice will come shortly in chapter 3. But the fact that God seeks them out and asks this question reminds us of God's character. Namely, he pursues lost sinners. And of course, this reality is most clearly seen in that God sent his one and only son to rescue us from our sin. To quote Luke 19.10, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now I'm not suggesting that Luke 19 is clearly in view of Genesis 3. But what I'm saying is you can see a glimmer of it. God's not done with Adam and Eve. He's still seeking them out. Where are you? He wants a relationship. But this is not surprising because this is who God is and this is what God does. He seeks and saves the lost. Now, to a degree, we begin to see that here in Genesis 3. We'll certainly see it as the the chapter progresses. But we'll notice this primarily when he sends his son to die for our sins. And so I think the only fitting response to that final lesson is simply this. Run to the one who pursues lost sinners. Listen, I don't know what things you've done in your life. I don't know what shame and baggage you're holding on to. I'm guessing some of you came in this room this morning with some heavy baggage on your shoulders. But I know this. If you bring your burdens to him, 
If you acknowledge your sin and turn from it, you repent. By the way, repentance is a huge part of the Christian message. I think sometimes we think that being a Christian is just acknowledging that Jesus lived and he died and he rose again. But Christian life, the Christian life is a life of repentance where we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Where we recognize the way we're going is not working. And I want to get back in line with what God wants for my life. We repent. When we do that, when we trust in Jesus Christ, he's waiting with open arms. Because hear this, he pursues lost sinners like Adam and Eve. He pursues lost sinners like you and me. So friend, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, and in a group this size, I'm sure there are many that that would describe, my pleading with you or my, my urgent ask of you is to consider who Jesus is and then run to him. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your sins. And if you've already done that, then give thanks that you knew a God and you know a God who waited for you with open arms, a God who pursued you while you were still dead in your sin. So listen, the immediate aftermath of the fall here is pretty ugly, but I think it's instructed too. It reminds us that sin separates us from God and that our natural tendency is to avoid taking responsibility for our sin. And in that way, it encourages us to take our sin seriously and take responsibility for our sin. But most importantly, the immediate aftermath reminds us that we worship a God who pursues lost sinners. So let's run to him and let's worship him because we know he's waiting with open arms. Let's pray. God, we come to you and we confess that we are sinners. There's no sense trying to blame someone else. We just want to own it. We are sinners in need of grace. We're so thankful you sent Jesus that our sins could be atoned for. We're so thankful that if we come to you and confess our need for mercy, you show mercy. We're so thankful that although we were dead, you make us alive. You made us alive in Jesus Christ, your son. And so I pray this morning, if there's anyone here who does not know you, they would come to you and find life. And if we already have that life, if, every, if there's people in here who already know you, then I pray that we would celebrate your kindness to us. That we would take our sins seriously on a daily basis. That we would fight against our sin. That we would take responsibility when we blow it. And then we would quickly run to the throne of grace. That we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. God, please help us to do this for your glory and for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So it seems fitting, given that we just talked about God's pursuit of lost sinners, that we would now come to the Lord's table together. Because at the table, we are reminded he pursued us by sending his son. Jesus' body was broken, his blood was shed, so that we could be made right with God. That if we would repent of our sins and trust Christ, we could be in right standing with him. And so if you're here today and you've trusted in Christ, we would invite you to participate with us in taking the Lord's Supper. If you do not know Christ, please do not participate in the Lord's Supper. But know this, if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven. Your sins can be wiped out and you can have peace with God. So I said, practically speaking, what's going to happen here in the next few minutes is we have five tables located around the sanctuary. They're all the same. This one does have a gluten-free option. Otherwise, the other four are exactly the same. And so when you're ready, Cade's going to come up here in just a minute. He's going to sing a song for us to give us time to reflect. And as Cade's singing, when you're ready, you can come get the elements. Take them back to, the table, or back to your chairs with you, and then we'll take them together here in a few minutes. So let me pray, and Cade will sing, and when you're ready, you can come forward. Uh, God, we thank you for the opportunity to celebrate the fact that you died on the cross for our sins, and you rose three days later. We thank you that Jesus was willing to do this to rescue us from our sin. We pray that now as we take the Lord's Supper, we would celebrate what he has done for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
so hard up. 